cliffcentral.com. So the 29th of September is World Heart Day, and we're going to find out more about heart health in this special podcast. Dr. Fatima Patel is a medical doctor currently engaged as the medical manager in the medical department at Asino. And it's very nice to see you. Thank you so much nice for coming in. Nice to see you, in. Gareth. Absolutely. And Dr. Farouk Mamdu. Dr. Farouk Mamdu is a, a very, very uh, impressive doctor. I mean, not that you're not, Fatima, but my goodness, his <laughs> qualifications. I mean, this man is is absolutely expert in so many ways. He's also the, the, the director for the Cardiovascular Research and Training Unit in Johannesburg and the Structural Heart Center at the Netka Alberton Hospital. Also the current convener for the SA Heart Annual Congress, and he's on a number of clinical advisory boards for academic and medical industry institutions. You're the heart doctor for the purposes of this discussion. Thanks very much, Gareth. Thanks for inviting me, Fatima and Gareth. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. I am too, and I think it's such an important thing for us to talk about because South Africans, we don't have a great record when it comes to heart health. And it is a big killer in South Africa, and people are maybe taking their hearts for granted. Is that saying too much? No, that's not saying too much. I think you're on point there. You're on the on the hit it on the nail there. So, what are, do we know? What the statistics are in terms of of overall heart health in South Africa? We have a bit of difficulty in collecting statistics because you know we have two tiered um, healthcare systems. We have the state sector and the private sector. Uh, the data collection in the state sector is not that robust, um, but the trends certainly are showing something quite obvious, which is in alignment with the rest of the world. If you look at the rest of the world, uh, developing or developed countries, there's a massive rise or an explosion in the prevalence of heart disease. So finally, something we actually have in common with the first world. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something we want in common with them, but it seems to be an overall trend. Absolutely. Why, why do you think it's happening? Urbanization. That's what's happened in South Africa. We've had this exponential urbanization since 94, since we've hit democracy. Um, the way people are living, the food, the lifestyle, the work hours, working environment, that's what's happening. Dr. Farouk will, will attest to that as well. He'll yeah, I think, I think one of the most um, prevalent, and we see this, that's why it's uh, in the developed world as well as the developing world or the rapidly developing world, um, I like to use the term coca-colonization, yeah. um, where there's a, a massive uh, uptake of uh, modern way of living. We call it modern and efficient, but it also comes with some serious side, side effects. Uh, part of it is, as Fatima mentioned, is stress. I think uh, the, the workplace, the marketplace, the, the lack of social cohesion, um, the uncertainties of life, uh, that adds a lot to it. And then with, with that sort of lifestyle comes a rapid lifestyle, uh, the need to get food quickly, if you know, and not spend time relaxing or exercising, long work hours, as you mentioned. Um, and then also the kind of foods we get are rapidly made or processed foods, which are toxic. Yeah. So it sounds to me like in some ways, heart disease does discriminate. It takes particular aim at modern living, urbanized modern living, and all of its pluses and minuses, you know, the pace, the stress that you mentioned, the food, the convenience, the inconvenience, frankly. Um, but it's also kind of a great leveler for those people in those societies because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, old or young, heart disease is something we should all worry about. 
Absolutely correct. In fact, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s in the developed world, a heart disease, we used to say type A personalities were affected. It used to be a white male. Uh, that was your risk category patient. Um, and that was simply because that was the kind of category of patients that were living a more developed mm. or more urbanized or more affluent lifestyle. Right. And that was why if you saw a, for example, a white male uh, presenting with chest pain, you had a high index of suspicion for, for diagnosing heart disease. Whereas if it happened in a... Is it still the number one disease that takes out billionaires? Billionaires, yeah. it still does. <laughs> um, but yeah, and if you then saw the same uh, sort of chest pain presentation in a non-white female, for example, you'd have a low index of suspicion. Whereas today, that's now changed uh, really? because there is no category of the businessman being a white male, a dominated sort of white male. And that's what's changed. So amongst females, along um, amongst uh, any urbanized population, mm. uh, it's across the board. And unfortunately, the lifestyles that are imbued by that sort of, uh, I would say, uh, privileged lifestyle is no longer the exclusive lifestyle of that category of person. person. It's now uh, across the board, you know, flourishing in a poorer community where the same levels of stress or anxiety or tension or deadlines, if you want to call that that, whether it's social pressures, work pressures, are applicable to that lower income community as well. Mm. It's like you said, it's a great leveler. But uh, let's get into some definitions. What are the causes of heart disease? What, uh, let's define heart disease. Mm. Let's create a, a medical definition around heart disease? Sure. So heart disease is anything, um, any uh, system uh, or any other uh, etiology, we say a cause that affects the heart in a negative way. A heart disease will manifest once the heart is affected negatively with heart failure. Mm. And there are many causes of that. So you have lesions or blockages of the blood supply to the heart, which is coronary artery disease or obstructive coronary artery disease. Someone then who blocks out for coronary artery, which is the supply of oxygen to the muscle of the heart, would have a heart attack, uh, technically termed myocardial infarction, that would lead to a form of heart disease called ischemic heart disease. Mm. The heart, as you know, is divided into very chambers. Uh, valves separate the various chambers of the heart. You can have degenerative or infective processes that affect these valves, leading to the valves to leak or block up, and that would be valvular heart disease. Mm. And then you have an electrical supply system of the heart where your heart has to pump in a certain coordinated timing fashion. And you may have then abnormalities in the electrical supply chain of the heart, uh, resulting in either a very fast or very slow heart rate, which also then causes heart disease. Mm -hmm. So this is a sort of just broad strokes definition of heart disease is, but you have risks for developing heart mm -hmm. disease. And these are illnesses that affect entire organ systems, but focus particularly on the heart, which then result in the heart um, becoming unwell. Uh, and things like high blood pressure, diabetes, mm -hmm. uh, things like affecting your thyroid gland, for example, your cholesterol levels. So these are yeah. not necessarily diseases per se, but they are levels of abnormality falling outside of what we call normal reference ranges. And if left unattended or untreated, will then start to exert their negative effects on the heart. Okay. I, I, you just described a system now, which, I mean, I've got a pool at home. And a number of times I've had to replace things. And I mean, I've only had it for like 10, 11 years. And I think about pipes and valves and, you know, sediment and cleaning and backwashing and electrical problems and salt and pH and all of these things. And it sounds to me like 
the heart does an extraordinary amount of work and wear and tear is a, a part of this process. I'm surprised that more people don't die in their 30s and 40s from heart attacks just from what you've described because all of these things that can go wrong, it's a miracle that some hearts make it to 100. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I was a student of Dr. Mamdu's when I, when I was a medical student and he used the example of the hose pipe uh, which talks to your pool and pipes. Yeah. It's, it's the same kind of principles. Uh, it's, it's a pump system. Isn't For it? sure. It's the hardest working organ in the body. Never so stops. Never stops. If it does stop, so, so do you. Um, <laughs> yeah. The heart pumps over 100,000 times a day. So that's, if you think about your pool pump, the heart, on an average heart, that's not with exercising or when your heart rate increases. It's 100,000 times a day. It pumps up to 7,500 liters of blood per day which is sometimes more than Rand Water does on an average load shedding <laughs> schedule. Absolutely. So, and that continues throughout on a daily basis throughout your entire lifespan. So clearly a very hardworking organ, um, a constantly, uh, an organ that is in need of constant maintenance, if you like, as you say, your pool. Mm. Uh, and certain adverse things can affect that function quite mm. rapidly or quickly. And it needs to be maintained as you need, you need to keep your water chlorinated, your filters mm. uh, cleaned out, uh, remove the leaves that, and sediment that fall in the pool. The heart, which is doing much more than your pool, uh, has to also have a maintenance plan. Yeah, it's ongoing. Okay, so, so what would be the importance of World Heart Day? And why, would, why should people be aware of World Heart Day? Let's, let's start there. So I think that what's very important is that because, as we mentioned earlier, it's now the most prevalent heart disease or heart attacks or heart failure is the most prevalent disease causing, causing the largest amounts of morbidity and, and mortality mm -hmm. worldwide. And that affects, uh, you I know, mean, we've got a World AIDS Day, we've got, you know, we've got World Days for everything else. This seems like something that should be right up at the top of that list. For sure. Um, oh. And I think because it's affecting such a large proportion of the the, the world, uh, there's a need to create awareness uh, of this disease because most of these ailments are in fact preventable or avoidable. And it's unfortunately just a profound lack of knowledge or information uh, where people are blinded to these very useful and very simple to implement changes, which can of course uh, prevent someone from having a serious heart yeah, attack. That's right. So uh, the need to have World Heart Day or World Heart Month is to again campaign for these sort of interventions that we can implement to get people interested. Just like we, we want to affect climate change in a positive way, it requires information sharing, it requires awareness campaigns, and similarly your heart health is just as important and, right. and, and something again that is unfortunately overlooked. It's not just a physical disease in the realm of medicine or science, uh, but it's a social ailment as well. I mean, by the time you've got to, to see you, Dr. Mamdu, we're in big trouble. It's too late. It's yeah. too late. So what are these things? You say a lot of this can be prevented, which is great news. And preventative medicine is everything these days. Mm. People are testing themselves in ways that they didn't before. They're aware of the contributing factors to, to a lot of these problems, even in you know, very rudimentary places where people don't have access to a lot of information. A lot of this is starting to seep through thanks to things like World Heart Day. But what are the major things everyone should be doing in order to look after their heart? I think the first step is to be, uh, create awareness that there's a need to look after your heart. There's a need to maintain the heart. 
And uh, we, we, we go about calling something Know Your Numbers campaign, um, mm. which is something that it's easy for people to understand. Uh, so know that certain diseases, which have numerical values attached to their reference or normal values, mm. uh, and to know what those numbers are in your own person. So know what your blood pressure is, know what your cholesterol levels are, know what your sugar levels are. These are all numbers that need to be, people need to be aware of. Uh, and it's easy to test these things in screening uh, methodology clinics. Uh, very quick, easy. In fact, a lot of the uh, healthcare non-invasive. funders, non-invasive. I mean, you check blood pressure with Correct. your doctor. Correct. You can go and do a blood glucose test very easily. Very easily. Doctor, you can check it at the local discount with a nurse. Yeah. Um, right. You can check it at a local clinic. I mean, the most Suffering you're going to have is a little pinprick. Correct. Yes. When they do the blood, the glucose, blood glucose test. Glucose. Absolutely. Right. And they're developing even more new innovative ways to use, for example, laser or uh, photometry. So not even sampling blood, but literally putting a device over your finger or earlobe and it you know, it calibrates uh, all these sort of measurements. So knowing your numbers is number one, the most important thing. So no one knows, no one wants to the number unless they're aware they need to check. So the first step is, becoming aware that there's an importance in needing a check of sorts uh, to evaluate your health or your heart health. And then knowing what numbers to check on. So mm. the most important thing would be know, as you mentioned, your blood pressure and then your cholesterol levels as well as your sugar levels. Those would be very basic, mm. very easy to address concerns and very, as we mentioned, very easily accessible tests to, to come by. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, to seek help when they seem to be out of out of sync. But what age should they start monitoring? When what what stage and how often should people be monitoring? You know, the goalposts are shifting. In the old days, we would say once you hit the age of forty five, you should go for some screening tests. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's happening in younger and younger people, more and more mm. people. So we now advocate for having these basic screening tests at least before the age of forty, around the age of forty for the average person. Of course, knowing your family history is very important because some of these diseases are genetic, which means they manifest at a much earlier stage. So if you are aware of a family member, a close relative that had suffered some form of heart disease, then your requirement to go and have a test or have an evaluation much more more earlier and earlier. Yeah. Um, So uh, let's just start with blood pressure. And the nice thing about having a conversation with you like this instead of having to rush things and like imagine that I'm in a doctor's consulting rooms and I've only got 10 minutes with yeah. you because there's another patient or seven outside. Blood pressure for starters, what are, the, what are the safe numbers there? And what do you do if it's too low? And what do you do if it's too high in terms of lifestyle? And those numbers tend to change also over time. They're always changing the goalposts with the guidelines that come to, as they reassess and review. So what are the latest news mm, So I, look, it's a, when you have a certain disease, then we try and actually lower your blood pressure a little bit more aggressively to a lower level. Uh, for example, a diabetic, we want their blood pressures slightly lower than we would advocate for an average non-diabetic. So those are what the guidelines are showing. But I think from the average person to understand that blood pressure is in variance all the time. Your blood pressure is never static. When you're excited, when you're angry, or when you're exercising, your blood pressure is up or raised. Mm. When you're sleeping completely and very rested, no dreaming, uh, in what we call REM sleep, your blood pressure is actually very, very low. Low, what we would say a normal person's average waking blood pressure would be, and that's no need to panic, of course. It's just uh, uh, um, 
a uh, function of what's actually the body is requiring at that time. Mm. So on average, a resting, awake person who's not exerting himself or not exercising or not agitated or angry or upset or nervous, uh, the blood pressure should not be below 90 over 60 on average. So 90 being what we call systolic blood pressure, 60 being the diastolic blood pressure. Difficult terms and difficult terminology to explain, but essentially if you buy an automated blood pressure machine, those are the figures it's going to put on the screen. Mm. Uh, 90 over 60 being the upper uh, lower limit, and then 140 over 90 being the upper limit. So anything falling within those figures, between 90 over 60 and between 140 over 90 would be normal. And anything above 140 over 90 would be required as hyper, uh, would be required. Uh, would be called hypertension, and low than, lower than 90 or 60 would be called too low blood but pressure. Would that be a once-off reading, or would you have to repeat that? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think uh, what we try and do is get someone to measure their blood pressure uh, at least three recordings in one sitting. So while you're sitting down, having mm. your blood pressure, you, if it's an automated machine, pressing that button three times, taking the average of the three readings, and doing it over a period of a few days. So you can get different measurements according to stresses, diet, all of that. I did a, a live blood pressure test here when I did all my, my tests the other day. And it's dodgy doing that because you're doing a show, you're paying attention to a lot of things, you've woken up, had a coffee, mm. salt could be a, a huge part of that too. And it was high. And they, they said to me, oh, that's a bit dangerous. It's going to knock your points down. And I said to them, just wait, we'll do two or three more. So I'm pleased that this is how you should do it because in the next three readings we did, absolutely fine. Correct. Well yeah. within that green zone. Yeah, and they often talk about the white coat effect when patients are in a doctor's room and the blood pressure is actually abnormally elevated because they have the sudden anxiety. Oh, yeah, it's because it's, it's scary. Yeah. You know, you're being, you're being monitored very closely. <laughs> yeah. So to both of you, because you have a handle on this, Diet, since we've already touched on it, is a big part of, of not only the, the blood pressure, but can also have a lot to do with cholesterol and can have a lot to do with blood glucose. So let's just throw those together and talk about what South Africans eat and whether we have overall a healthy diet. What sort of food makes things worse for the heart and what sort of food makes things better for the heart? And, and before we get to that, uh, Gareth, let's talk about the numbers for cholesterol and for sugar. Mm. And then, then let's talk about the foods like Gareth was saying. Yeah. So, so what are the numbers for cholesterol that people should be looking at? So, you know, we, we always, you, you probably hear this terminology quite often, your good cholesterol, your bad cholesterol. Yeah. Um, they also, again, difficult to understand for the average person, but essentially a total cholesterol level of above 4.5 to 5, uh, depending on, again, uh, similar values and references change. So if you're diabetic, we want it even lower. Uh, if you're an average person, we, we, we don't mind if your cholesterol is around 4.5, your total. Mm -hmm. What we often refer to as the LDL, which is a low-density lipoprotein, it's one of the forms of cholesterol that uh, is particularly dangerous. We don't want that level to be above 3 on average. Again, lower if you're diabetic or if you've had a, already had a heart attack. We want it even lower to around 1.8. And similarly with the sugar uh, or the, so we look at fasting sugar, which is a very uh, important. If you've just had a heavy meal, if you've had a, a, a sweet or a chocolate, your sugar level may be slightly higher and spike for a very short amount of time if you're not a diabetic. But if you're diabetic, of course, it will stay higher. So we want your average fasting sugar to be below six. 
we look at something called an HbA1c, which is a measure of your average sugar over three months, and we want that level to be below six as well, or 6.5, depending on the guidelines you're looking at. If you are, for example, already had a heart attack, we want it a bit lower. And then and we mentioned blood pressure before. Mm. So your diet, as you know, plays a crucial role in, in these fluctuations of your levels of sugar and your levels of glucose or your levels of cholesterol. Mm. And uh, the unfortunate thing is, as Gareth was asking earlier, modern day diet is consisting of very what we call processed foods, mm. which are very highly or refined. Um, and thus they have a very quick metabolism or uptake where they spike your sugar levels or your cholesterol levels. They digest it in such a way that uh, they're also designed, unfortunately, in such a way to give you that what we call reward or release. Mm. A lot um, of them also have a lot of high levels of hidden sugar. As well. Uh, Correct, yeah. yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, these processed foods, which are very palatable, they often marketed with uh, big campaigns, so they look attractive. Uh, they are also marketed in a way to show you that they are easy to obtain, and we know the convenience industry is benefiting a lot from this. Uh, Kevin, we've also been sold such nonsense, too, um, by the food industry, by people who are just trying to sell stuff a lot of the time, and... There has been deliberate misinformation. I mean, we've heard about the margarine butter argument. We've heard about good fats, bad fats. We've heard about sugar and whether you should have it or you shouldn't have it. And there is also new science all the time. There is new research being done. Um, is it true that people who have too much salt in their diet will have high blood pressure, for example? Now, that we actually see quite prevalent, especially in developing nations. So uh -huh. as uh, the salt intake, and remember, we use salt traditionally as a preservative, um, yes. which, is, which is what's happening a lot in the food industry, but not necessarily uh -huh. salt as in sodium chloride, the actual molecule table salt. Uh, we use other sort of preservatives, which are mineral salts, sulfates, if you like, sulfates and potassiums, sulfites. sulfites. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are all designed to keep the food looking good and tasting fresh in inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, they're actually old foods. And the, the reason is obviously to get these foods to last longer on the shelves, uh, to make them look more attractive to people. And also we remember we export a lot of foods all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and your shelf life is determining on your, your net cost uh, and your net profit margin. But it might have a very bad effect on our heart's shelf life. Correct. Yes, exactly. Correct, That's correct. That. So these sort of hidden salts or sugars, as you mentioned, uh, are there to preserve the food. Mm. So what we say processed foods, when we use the term process, that's kind of what we're speaking about. We mean that the natural ingredient has been altered in such a way or processed so that it is a longer available. And that processing of the food is unfortunately what leads to a lot of elevated sugar. And we see this especially, for example, in, in Africa as a whole, not just South Africa. We look at Africa. Uh, the level of hypertension north of our borders is skyrocketing. Mm. Um, and the reason is because these traditional communities, even though they were maybe rural-based, where they would get food that was fresh from the fields, if you like, uh, are now getting more and more of these processed foods from these big multinational corporates, which mm. are very processed. And we've seen, and these people may still love traditional lifestyles, traditional rural lifestyles. They may still plow the fields, if you will, uh, walk uh, long distances, but they're sourcing their food more and more from these processed goodies. And we've seen the level of hypertension spike in these countries. So salt intake, even though it may not taste salty, for example, a uh, carbonated beverage today may, not, may be actually sweet tasting. 
um, you know, have a lot of salt, but in have it. a lot of salt. In and it. what about meat? Because that often comes up. You know, um, it's if if it's fresh and it is cooked properly, meat is obviously a very good source of protein. Uh, by and large, our ancestors were omnivorous and survived largely on the protein that they got from animals. And while we all know that there are virtues to vegetables and to fruit, um, meat has been sort of demonized in in modern scientific literature for its high salt for, you know, content, among other things. But is meat generally good, generally bad, or does it depend? Just like you were saying about other preserved foods. Mm, I think, uh, so there's, there's different ways of looking at the problem. Uh, I think the one major problem is uh, the amount of meat we eat is disproportionate for what we actually need. So Too much or too little? Too much. We eat way too much meat. So when people say, oh, you know, this family's so poor, if they're lucky they get one meal that's got meat in it a week, mm. you're saying that might not be so bad. May not be so bad. If you look at what your body requires in terms of protein, um, you, your body requires the amount of protein in a, let's, let's take a red meat, for example, mm -hmm. or a piece of steak. Um, the, a piece of steak the size of a deck of cards is sort of all the protein you need to get you through an entire week. Um, yes. And if you, if you consider that amount of protein as being your minimum required, so how much we actually get, we definitely overdo it. Yeah. And I think that's where the, the, the necessity of, I would say, demonizing it in a sense is because we really do overdo it. There's, there's an excessive amount of intake yes. across the board, not just for meats and, you know, but for all foodstuffs. We generally overeat. Doc, I will say this is upsetting me because uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big carnivore. <laughs> that's the general cause for a lot of things. It's, it's the, our portion sizes. Mm. It's excess. Ah. More than… Um, so not so much that you like something, is that you have too much too of it. Too much of it, exactly. correct. Yeah. So I've even been told like the, the size of your palm is… Um, I've been told the size of your palm is what you… Is the amount of protein you need. Deck of cards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 correct. Um, uh, and, and, and that's the point. The point is uh, there's nothing wrong with being omnivorous. As you mentioned, ecologically or um, evolutionary, that's how we are built. We need uh, various sources of food, um, especially for the way we need to function. And we are, our, our bodies were designed that way. We were yeah. designed to, to manage a mix of food substances. Mm. And we've evolved accordingly. Um, so I, I don't have a particular qualm of people having meat. There obviously are people that are averse to it in terms of animal rights sure. and so on, which again is... Is there a kind of meat that's better? I mean, you said red meat just now. Mm. And I've never really even asked a doctor this. Is, is beef better than lamb, better than pork, better than chicken? Like wh what mm. kind of meat is probably more optimal? I think it's more of the way we prepare it rather than, you know, if oh, you so look at… too much oil and fat and, and, uh, and so on. I, over, I think also, yeah, look, red meat generally has high level of cholesterol in it as well. Mm. So if you do have a problem with your cholesterol levels, then you would have, you'd be better off having something like fish in terms of protein. Uh, but if you're an average person, a little bit of meat is probably fine. Uh, the problem I think also is, and that's what's driven the industry, which is because of the excessive amount of meats we're doing, right. the way our meats are cultivated. So they are, let's take your average cow. Mm. It's uh, probably injected with testosterone or various sorts of hormones pumped with antibiotics. It's fed unnatural foodstuffs mm. to make it grow very quickly. That's right. um, the chickens that are eaten today are often, again, fed a hell of a lot of, correct, and, yeah. correct. They're so often the, injected with saline to plump them up. So the what they, meat. yeah, and once they are, uh, 
slaughtered. Uh, slaughtered. Yeah. Uh, they, they injected with something. Yeah, so they injected with brine, yes, uh, which right. is a mix of salt and sugar and sort of things to plump them up. They sold by weight. It, it then looks Gross. and tastes juicy. So it's altered. So again, it's processed. Yeah. And our meats now, unfortunately, and the red meats per se are processed more mm. uh, than your fishes, for example. Um, so that's why on average, your red meats are a little bit more risky, simply because they're undergoing a higher level of processing uh, right. than the other forms of meat. So we have to look at the industry as a whole. And I think that's where these uh, animal rights activists are are most dedicated to saying, why are we treating these animals in such a way? And simply because of the way society has been designed to overeat. Eat. That's right. And if you were to then obviously go back to our traditional hunter-gatherer evolutionary background, we would eat meat on a needed basis and it would last a hell of a long time. And the meat would be what we call free range. Again, another term that has to be very careful. They talk about free range chickens. You often buy those uh, chickens, the free range by definition is allowed by law if your little chicken hawk, mm. if you like, has a window uh, in it that's of a certain large enough dimension. So enough sunlight gets into that hawk, it's then considered free range. <laughs> These are not chickens running around in the fields. <laughs> happy little so, wild chickens. Yeah. Um, I know you've got a ton of questions, Fatima, but I've, I've got to ask this one quickly because you you mentioned already resting heart rate in terms of of blood pressure and, and beats per minute and all the rest of it. And a friend of mine once said to me that he reckons you only have a certain number of heart beats in a life and that that actually determines your longevity. I mean, it's an interesting, wild theory. But the reality is when you exercise, for example, your heart rate does go up, your blood pressure goes up, all of these numbers change. Um, is there such a thing as being too slovenly and sloth-like and not doing enough exercise and that affecting the heart in a negative way, how does that happen? And then what happens if you overdo it? Because you often hear about people who like, yeah. you have a heart attack on the treadmill. Yeah. Correct, yeah. And so um, if, if we're looking at just the heart, for example, and we're going to use these uh, generic terms when mm -hmm. we're looking at the heart, uh, it's a muscle. Sure. Yeah, end of the day. And if you look at, to easier understand how a muscle works, if you go to the gym every day and you were to lift a dumbbell with your biceps every day, that muscle would grow, it would become more powerful, it would be able to take on more weight and be able to for, perform more exercise. Now, if you constantly do that abnormally, so overdo it, you only work, for example, your right arm all the time, uh, it would disproportionately grow out of proportion with the rest of your body. And that would affect you in a different way. The way you sleep at night, for example, will be altered because your muscle and your right arm is bigger than the other side. Uh, it would also cause you to weaken other parts of your body because you are not exercising those enough. Mm. And similarly, you, you can overdo it in a sense with the heart. And that's what we see sometimes with these performance athletes or these supreme athletes. Cyclists. Uh, cyclists. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a problem of these you know, people taking performance-enhancing drugs again to stimulate themselves. So that's when you hear the story of the so-called supreme athlete that suddenly collapses. Yeah. A lot of the time it's substance abuse or performance enhancing drugs which aren't used properly. But also you can overdo it where your heart now is adapting to these extreme forms of exertion. Uh, it's adapting in sometimes a negative way. It's over-adapting what we call maladaptive response. Mm -hmm. And this causes now genetically triggered alterations in the structure and function of the heart, which can lead to electrical problems with sudden death, we say, where the heart suddenly shivers and shakes or stops. The muscle is still strong, 
the, the pump function of the heart is super efficient, but the electrical supply is disrupted. And that's because it's um, been genetically programmed by overdoing it mm -hmm. to not only a heart muscle growing, but also some electrical or nerve fibers uh, growing in an abnormal way. Yes. Um, and then, of course, slovenly is the other extreme where you don't exercise at all. And, and you can think about, again, not going to the gym at all or just lying down on the couch all the time. The only muscle moving is your thumbs on your phone or your remote control button. Uh, you're talking about modern living right <laughs> yes. there. Correct, yeah. yeah. Now you're not using that tool that you have. And that disuse or maluse of that tool will also lead to degeneration. So even though the heart rate isn't going up, it's probably fairly low because you're not using it that much, it starts to degenerate simply from lack of usage. Just like any other tool in your, in your home, for example, if mm -hmm. you do not switch on that device, the time comes when you need to switch on, it's collected dust, it's rusted, and all of a sudden now it doesn't want to work. Yeah. That's quite right. Um, we'll, we'll try and go into some technical uh, understanding of, of heart disease. We'll go through some various definitions, uh, various conditions. Um, but just as an overall, how do you diagnose heart disease? Let's, let's start there. Yeah. How do we diagnose it? And what are the risk factors sure. for heart disease? So I think the first thing to, uh, we diagnose once you've already had a problem, as the Aerith mentioned earlier, that's a bit late. We'd like to uh, uh define your risk of developing heart disease earlier. So before you have a symptom, uh, which we'll get into just now, I think we need to define knowing your numbers. So understanding that you may be at risk of developing heart disease and then seeking those various screening tools that we, we mentioned, yes. your sugar, your cholesterol, your blood pressure. So going in for one of those routine checks is number one. We can pick up, and remember these problems, having a high cholesterol level or high blood pressure level or high sugar level is often asymptomatic. So you're not aware of it. So you may have developed already early heart disease, but weren't aware of it simply because you hadn't tested for yeah. these things. So we often call hypertension or cholesterol levels or sugar silent killer because they're not often symptomatic. People don't know they have it. And the first time they then are diagnosed it is when their heart starts to fail as a consequence of having these undiagnosed uh, systemic, we say, illnesses. So the first step is before even having a symptom is understanding the need to screen for these things. And then it is a matter of walking into a healthcare practitioner or a, uh, uh, a disc game, as you mentioned, or some form where you are able primary to have this primary healthcare clinic, center yeah. or clinic and having these tests done. It doesn't have to be yeah. by a doctor, it's usually by a nurse or even a, a general helper uh, that can simply apply these blood pressure measurements or whatever. You spoke about around the age of 40, but younger people are more unhealthy and have higher than average BMIs today. Do you think that younger people should be, or people of certain BMI should be looking Correct. at this? Correct. So BMI is body mass index, yes. uh, and that's basically how much weight you have in relation to your height. Obviously, a tall person who's lean and slim may weigh the same as a short person who's obese. So we index it. Uh, your body mass index is an index of how big you're allowed to be for your height. If you have a very high BMI, meaning you have more weight for your height, then you should also go and have a routine check. So as we mentioned earlier, before you have symptoms, knowing how what your BMI is, cholesterol, sugar, and so on. Uh, and then once you have tested and screened for those diseases, knowing what symptoms to look out for, which may allude to the fact that you are perhaps developing some form of heart disease. Now, I get into a lot of trouble, and Dr. Fatima will tell you about this. But Dr. Farouk, I've had, I, I often say 
to people who are overweight and obese that they must start taking responsibility for themselves. Run, run more, eat less. Right. And, I, and, you know, people think immediately you're being horrible. And sometimes I'll admit I am just being horrible. I have to watch my weight because I've said so many horrible things about fat people that if they see me getting fat, they're going to come after me. Set right? a high standard. Well, I mean, listen, I think it's, it's important that we acknowledge that if you are large, if you're over a certain BMI, you're also putting an enormous strain on your whole circulatory system. And since we're talking about hearts, the heart cannot pump endless amounts of blood into morbid tissue that is just adipose, that's taking up space that isn't performing a vital function in the body. And that if anything is drawing on the essential energy that, that all of that blood has to be providing, it's a very difficult thing to put your body through. And if anything, all that visceral fat becomes sort of an organ on its own when it's excessive. Mm -hmm. And it uh, causes a whole lot of disruptions with your metabolism, your insulin. Um, right. Balance. Yeah. Um, I think what people often, I mean, we came out of COVID, everybody became an expert on inflammation. <laughs> uh, and you had uh, a lot of, uh, you know, things going viral about how the immune system works. And what we've ignored uh, during that period of time was, in fact, that adipose tissue or fatty tissue especially as Fatima mentioned, visceral, which is uh, located in the abdomen, uh, is a highly inflammatory substance. It becomes an organ sending out inflammatory signals in the body. And these inflammatory signals cause disruption of what we call cholesterol plaques, uh, cause heart attacks, cause alterations in your blood pressure variation, your heart rate, uh, and these are very, very adverse effects. So as you mentioned, Gareth, um, remember when we say someone is large, we don't mean big boned or tall. <laughs> uh, we're talking about visceral or abdominal mm. fat. And and we know people come in different shapes and sizes. We were created to be various and no, that's wonderful. Why I said you don't have to be uh, politically correct. You're the doctor. Whatever you say is true. <laughs> I can say... Bad idea to be fat. <laughs> bad idea to have visceral fat, yeah. Oh. And, we, and we see this. No, so it is we, a bad idea. It is a very bad idea. And, and we see that, um, uh, you know, people, as I said, different body shapes. People have sometimes larger hips, for example, or, and, and then it would appear that they have larger amount of fat around their lower sections of their body. And that's not true. But what we need to look at then is abdominal fat, your mm -hmm. your. Uh, can we say beer belly if you want or yeah. your boop uh, yeah. that would be the term that's a very um, South African thing correct the apple shape that uh, they correct. often describe yeah and, and that is very dangerous fat there's no there's excellent scientific mm -hmm. evidence that abdominal fat or visceral fat is bad for you mm -hmm. uh, it's not something you can hide away from there is no excuse as well to be, as you said, politically correct. Different shapes and sizes are variable, but abdominal fat is bad for you. Uh, I'm a, just as an aside, I must say, I, I, I mean, I was an instructor at the university at Rhodes when I was uh, in the 2000s. And when I went back in 2016 to do my community service and I saw the students who were coming to classes, then there was a distinct difference in the average BMI and levels of activity in students. So I'm talking people between the ages of 21 and 25. But it's a, I think it's an uncontroversial thing to say that all across the world, we are getting fatter. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, you can just look at pictures of people from 50 years ago, just doing, yes. you know, like going to the yes. beach. Mm. Yeah. And you, it's mm. just not comparable. Yeah. Yeah. And watch watch any Hollywood movie and look at the, you know, the extras, let's say a scene in New York, for yeah. example, watch a movie that was made in the 70s or 80s. 
even. And, and you look at the extras walking across the streets of New York in any Hollywood movie, and you'd see that, you know, they used to wear those bell-bottom pants that were really tight around the waist, waist. and hips. Mm-hmm. They used to wear these tight shirts that were opened up to the midriff almost. Uh, and they were, they, there were no belly boobs there. Yes. Um, and they, those were extras. Those are average people. These are not now the movie stars that are obviously, you know, looking a very specific way. These are the average people walking across the street. It's the whole combination of things, uh, levels of activity, eating factors, the dietary habits, everything was different. Lifestyles were different. Stress levels were different. I think it was a different, there was a different ethos uh, at but that there time. There isn't, there isn't much of an excuse if you know. No, there isn't. And, and these days the ability to, you know, hop on your phone and I'm not suggesting people try and diagnose their own conditions because I know how you doctors get annoyed and rightly so by people who think they're a doctor and then they go and Google something and they think they've got brain cancer, you know, meanwhile they've got a headache. Um, (laughs) I know that that's a problem, but these are things that are available to people. This information is being put out there by public health, by the internet in, in, in general, by doctors, by podcasts like this. So if you are blissfully ignorant, that's on you. Now, what's amazing is we have more information now. We have more scientific insight into what is good and what is bad for us and what affects our health. And people are, like you say, more blissfully ignorant of it now. They're, they're more blasé about their health now than ever before. When you talk about the extras on those movie sets, the average person was a lot more health conscious or um, exercise conscious, diet, diet conscious at that time than we are now, despite the fact that we have more information. And, and there's a gym on every corner. And, and there's a gym on know, every corner. There are, mm. there are things we can do. Mm. We're, not, we're not just like dependent on the one market in town to get all of our stuff. That's right. So I just want to throw in any other stuff to wrap so it up that we, we must cover. We'll just cover some of the technical aspects, um, some of the diseases, specific diseases around heart disease. So the, the, one, of the, one of the things that is quite common is the valvular heart disease. How do we diagnose it? What are the signs and symptoms around valvular heart disease? And how do we treat uh, valvular heart disease? Mm, so, uh, as you know, valves regulate uh, flow and uh, usually it's supposed to be in one direction. So the heart's job is to get blood out and in uh, and to the lungs and to the rest of the body. And this is regulated uh, in terms of flow dynamics through the valves of the heart. The most common valve disease is aortic stenosis. So this is the valve located at the exit portion on the left side of the heart where blood is, is bicuspid or tricuspid? Tri- most of the time it's a tricuspid valve. <laughs> that means three <laughs> pieces to it. Well done, well done. And this valve, uh, because it's subjected to a very high degree of pressure, it's the left ventricle which is responsible for pumping blood out to the rest of the body. So it has a lot of work to do. Uh, and every time this left ventricle contracts or pumps, it squeezes blood out through this aortic valve. And so this valve is subjected to many working tensions and loads. And over time, uh, like anything else, it does start to wear down or degenerate. And the commonest form of valvular disease worldwide is aortic stenosis. You have other diseases such as uh, rheumatic heart disease, where there's a an infection somewhere when you're young, your immune system is abnormally developed or um, immature, and you start making inflammatory or immune cells that now instead of attacking the infection you have in your throat, go and attack your heart valve. It's common in more rural areas. Uh, and then you end up with something called rheumatic heart disease can affect any of the four valves of the heart, leading to them leaking or degenerating or blocking up. And so diagnosing these are symptoms that would come with this is some form of heart failure. 
And we didn't speak about that actually. Yeah. So any form of heart failure would manifest with a certain form of uh, certain symptoms. The common has just been a bit of fatigue. So uh, effort intolerance, we say. So you know you might find that you used to be able to walk up two flights of stairs. It's now becoming limited. You get very short of breath. You have to stop halfway, take a few deep breaths, and recover before you can. Uh, carry on moving. So shortness of breath right. with ex with increasing levels of activity uh, is one of the first signs of heart disease. Uh, another sign is, of course, pain in the chest. So this is not necessarily limited to valve disease, but more commonly, the most common form of heart disease being hypertension and heart attacks or blocked arteries is chest pain. And we talk about chest pain being in a region of the mid part of the chest uh, it often feels like something squeezing your chest or someone sitting on your chest, a rubber band or constriction feeling in your chest, pressure type pain. Mm -hmm. And then some of this pain radiates or extends into the, usually the left side of your neck or down your left arm. So you often feel weakness in the shoulders or left arm especially or left um, uh, uh, or the shoulders. And Why does that happen, that radiation into the left arm? It's got to do with the way we evolve our cardiovascular system when we are in in development in utero, so inside the womb, uh, the way our hearts differentiate. Remember, we, we start forming our bodies from a single cell. Yes. Mm. And as it differentiates, the nerve fibers, vascular fibers, and vascular tissue uh, move along certain uh, anatomical lines. And the nerve fibers that come from the left side of the heart travel that way. So it's, right. uh, it's a residual uh, sort of nerve tissue that is extending from there. And then, of course, there's swelling. So the heart is a pump, as we said. It's got a pump fluid around the body. And if this pump is not working efficiently, there'll be stasis or fluid buildup. So you might find that you get leg swelling, your feet swell up, your shoes feel a bit tight, or your socks leave indentations on the skin. Uh, the other form is water filling up in your lungs or blood pooling in the lungs, which will lead to a dry, irritating cough. Sometimes that cough can be a bit productive. So some people think they're having a bronchitis or pneumonia or chest infection, but it may actually be what we call pulmonary edema. And then also when you lie flat at night, yes. you start having difficulty in breathing because this fluid buildup in the lung travels now is spread by gravity to the upper portions of the lung, which are better oxygenated, so you start becoming short of breath or have difficulty breathing when you're lying down or lying flat at night. And then the other one is syncope or blackouts or dizziness or lightheaded feelings. Yes. And that's obviously something going wrong with the heart and blood supply to the brain is negatively affected. So you'd end up with uh, a, someone who just has a sudden blackout for no reason or feels dizzy all the time, especially when they get up and walk and go to, for example, in the middle of the night, go to, to the bathroom. They may collapse. Sometimes it's just related to a low blood pressure and they got up too quickly. We've all had that symptom. We get up sometimes and you right. feel a bit woozy. It's not necessarily meaning you have heart disease, but if you do have heart disease, it becomes very prevalent. Yeah. So those are some of the symptoms. And then, of course, um, there are specific investigations that we would do. So then diagnosing is so when you have one of those symptoms, often it's, you need to visit your practitioner. They'll probably do a physical exam, things like measuring your blood pressure, feeling your pulses. And then very importantly is doing an electrocardiogram, which is an ECG, which is an electrical recording of the heart. We can tell a lot of what's going on in the heart from the pattern found on the ECG. And then modern techniques such as an echocardiogram, which is a heart sonar, which is... As you know, you look at a fetus in the womb with an ultrasound examination, and you would do an ultrasound examination of the heart, looking at all these structures, which can be very easily seen on an ultrasound, the muscle, the valves, and so forth. So I, I just want to throw this in here because this is the producer saw this term, 
and thought maybe she was seeing triple or double. But there is something that you're the director of, or you were the director of, transesophageal echocardiography. What is that? And why <laughs> would you Mamdu have to go for that? Dr. is an expert in yeah. that. Why would you have to go for that? So, yeah, this, uh, so transesophageal, transesophageal means crossing through the esophagus. Right. Now, we've all heard of people having uh, gastroscopies or yes. cameras put down to look for ulcers in their, throat, in their stomachs. So this would be a little pipe with a camera on it that goes into your stomach. Now, we perform a transesophageal echocardiogram, which is a similar pipe. Although it's not a camera looking at the stomach, there's an ultrasound probe, the same kind of probe that we look at uh, when we look at the ultrasound of the heart, but it's going through the food pipe. And the reason for this is when we look at the heart through a, a normal ultrasound, we have to go through skin, bone, muscle, lung, before we get to the heart structures underlying. And the ultrasound beam gets disrupted as it travels through those structures before it hits the heart tissue. Whereas if you go through the esophagus, all that's between the heart and the esophagus is a thin, well, no, a thin little layer of muscle, the esophagus itself, hmm. which is the food oh, pipe. Oh, so you're right next to you're the right heart. You're right next to the heart. Okay. Yeah. So, so you don't even go into the stomach. Not even, yeah. Okay. So just so midway between the esophagus is where the heart is, and you can see these structures with much better definition. Huh. So then that'll help you figure out very precise measurements. Very precise measurements and structures. Look, we can, today the modern ultrasound machines are very good, even the ones going through the uh, chest cavity. Hmm. So, wow. so we don't often have to do the transesophageal echo uh, or ultrasound, but we often have to do it for very small structures. And there's certain areas of the heart that cannot be visualized from outside the chest. So who are the patients that would qualify for transesophageal? Uh, very many, but they're very specialized. I would say okay. from all the ultrasound investigations we do, probably about 10% of patients will require transesophageal ultrasound. And that would be, sometimes it's just difficult. Someone who's, as you mentioned, very large, for example, we just can't get through all that fatty tissue or breast tissue to get to the heart. Someone who has a deformed chest. You have to go to the one place that we know works. It works, <laughs> that's right. <Yeah. laughs> and they, and, and they're, they're very good at swallowing the probe, right? So, so that, <laughs> so. The probe fears for its life. <laughs> all right. I mean, we're being, we're being funny here, but this is actually a very serious situation. Because as I said just now, by the time we've reached you, Dr. Mandu, we're in big trouble. They're like that's it's normally tickets. Mm. How how can you in those very acute situations where you realize someone has got major heart disease, the problem is not going to be solved by just cutting down on red meat mm. and not having let's so take much it a, let's take it a step back and let's talk about um, the heart attacks, the, what we call the myocardial infarctions. Mm. Because that's when you will most commonly see guys presenting mm. at the casualty or mm -hmm. to the doctor when they're having an yep. acute heart attack. Um, let's define it and how, would it, how do we approach it? Mm. So I think early warning signs are important, as you said, Gareth. Some, so just put people into context, and I don't mean to scare everybody, but about 60% of heart attacks are fatal. They don't even get to the hospital. So an artery blocks, a critical artery that's supplying the heart muscle tissue. And the heart, even though the muscle itself isn't particularly badly damaged, but the electrical supply to the heart, which is the rhythm of the heart, mm. is suddenly disrupted. And so even though the muscle is still capable of pumping, the speed or contractile sequence of the heart is thrown off. And so the heart stops or fibrillates, we say. So it shivers and shakes, and there's no cardiac output and no blood being pumped out. 
and you suddenly collapse. And that's very quick. Within seconds, you hit the floor. You're not able to recuperate or call for help. And that's most of the time. Like I said, almost Mm -hmm. 60% of sudden heart attacks present that way, what we call sudden cardiac death. And so that's important. Um, So that most heart attacks present that way, you don't want to be that person. So if you have symptoms of angina, as we said, or chest pain, uh, which is maybe a sign that there's an artery being narrowed, seek help early. Mm. But of course, if you are having then chest pain without exertion or without exercise, and if you have the right risk category, so you're that patient with diabetes, high blood, or have a family history, and you don't know what your cholesterol level is or your sugar level, you never tested or never bothered to check, and you're a smoker, we forgot to mention smoking, a very Mm -hmm. big risk factor. And if you're, of course, older, as things degenerate, so do your arteries narrow up just with aging, then do not ignore that symptom. Mm. And then, of course, quickly go and seek help. Uh, and the, the help you need is usually uh, in an emergency medicine department or a cardiologist's office or specialist physician's office or even your general practitioner who has the tools to diagnose you as having a heart attack. And we talk about a term called time is muscle. The longer you wait with a blocked artery, the more damage there is to the muscle. And so it's imperative that you limit the time taken for that artery or that blood vessel that's blocked to get it open and supply the muscle again. And that can be done by pharmacological therapy, so certain blood thinner drugs that we have to administer to the patient immediately. But more importantly is getting to what we call a cardiac catheterization laboratory, which is a a surgical theater where we can put the various catheters or pipes or wires into the heart, into the blood vessel, and unblock that artery quickly. So and if you can't unblock the artery? We, we, we have a very high success rate, I would say. <laughs> but then so, when does the um, bypass grafting surgery mm. come into play? So uh, sometimes there is a bit late or we usually what we call rescue PCI. So this is where we unblock that blocked artery that's filled with thrombus and usually we get that right. But there are multiple other narrowings in the blood vessels uh, that have been developing over time. Yes. And so uh, open up one artery doesn't solve the problem completely. So often what we have to do is what we call multi-vessel staged PCI, which is opening up all arteries but at stages. But then sometimes these arteries are so badly narrowed or blocked that it's not feasible to put in so many what we call stents, which are these little scaffolds that keep the artery open. And then we recommend these patients go in for bypass surgery. That can also be done in a non-elective way, so uh, in a non-emergent way. So sometimes the artery that's suddenly blocked, we open up with an angiogram with this cath- in the cardiac cath lab, the patient recovers, and then the other remaining vessels and the vessel maybe that was treated is then subjected to what we call open heart surgery or bypass grafting. Mm-hmm. And this is literally cutting open the chest, taking veins and arteries from other parts of the body, transplanting them into the heart, bypassing the area that was blocked. And that's done then in a, uh, under general anesthesia, of course. So you're knocked out. Your chest is sawed open through the sternum. Hmm. Um, and we have an artificial pumping system. And for sometimes the blood. we have to arrest the heart. So we have a system. We stop the heart, and there's a pump that's taking blood out of the heart, uh, put it into a machine, rewarming it, oxygenating it, and then putting it back into the body. So the heart and the lungs have been stopped for this procedure to occur. Now, there's still a very high good success rate with that procedure, but the recovery is, of course, a bit longer. Um, You know, you have to heal from all of this. Let's just try our best not to get there. Yeah, I think that's important. That's the importance of World Heart Day. Get everybody aware and And, and, wake up. And I think that's also a really good place to, to end this because there is so much more we could talk about and perhaps we should do more of these. 
But I want to thank you both because it's always good having the experts in here. And when an expert, Dr. Fatima, is asking you know, Dr. Farouk questions, we get the very best answers we can get. And I think the work is up to us, you know, as Madiba said, it's in your hands. So just make sure that you look after your heart because it's only going to be that one opportunity that's that you right. have. And, and right. as you said, when that stops, you stop. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Just on a parting note, uh, there's any upcoming congresses or mm. events? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have an annual congress. SA Heart is a nonprofit organization that looks after the interest of cardiologists and allied uh, cardiovascular practitioners and our congress this year is from the 27th to the 30th of October at the Santon Convention Center in Johannesburg. Um, it's open to any participants but it's directed at people working in the cardiovascular space. We have a number of international experts coming across. That's a good thing about us in South Africa. The one thing I would say we've got right is our academic medicine. Um, hmm. we, we have a very high standard of academics That's in right. the country, our universities, through to our specialization uh, platforms. Uh, you know, uh, specializing as a cardiologist is a very long road. And the updates are there all the time. And they, there's so many innovations, so many better ways of doing things. There's no way you can keep up unless you attend things like this Congress. Yeah. Um, very glad to hear that from you. And, and you're the convener. Yeah, for the yeah. and we have a number of international experts. We collaborate on research projects. So these people come across frequently to us and we have a lot of our doctors going across overseas and training with yes. the latest techniques and Brilliant. innovation. So Brilliant. one thing we do understand is that uh, it's meetings like these and meet shows such as these that is an ongoing process. We cannot work in isolation. Yeah. There's no way that a group of cardiologists attending a Congress can solve this problem. We need people involved, awareness to be created, and platforms such as the Congress and these shows are a collaborative effort. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you both. This has been thank you, fascinating. Gareth. Thank you, Dr. Um, thank Martin. you, Gareth. Pressure's thank you, on. Fatima. Pressure's <laughs> on. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody.